2: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Sepsis is back in the news again. We have two reports this morning. Dennis Jones reports on the decision by the Healthcare Association of New York to reject United Healthcare's use of sepsis 3 to review claims. And Denise Williams provides an overview of sepsis 3. It's a subject of continuing controversy. In other news, Intermountain Healthcare is trying to take its ongoing challenge of the False Claims Act of the Supreme Court nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman will report on this developing story later in the broadcast. Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel is standing by with the auditor report, and Nancy Beckley has the latest on topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday.
0: Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch.
1: Well, good morning, all. It's another week with lots of news. An interesting probe audit popped up on the CGS page. They're going to audit all levels of physician visits where an opioid or benzodiazepine was prescribed. But there's no indication if they're going to look solely at the visit coding to make sure the right level was chosen, or if they're somehow going to be looking at the actual medication prescribing for appropriateness. Now, Ohio and Kentucky are both in the top 10 in the nation for opioid-related deaths, so increased scrutiny is needed. But is a targeted probe and educate process the way to do that? I'm not so sure. Now, we also talked a lot last year about the changes to physician documentation and the coding of office visits with the changes adopted by CMS. Those are the E&M codes. Uh, last week, NGS released a new document summarizing what they call the highlight. I've asked Emily to put it in the handouts tab if you're interested in getting it. It provides a lot of good details. I'm especially intrigued that they are allowing doctors to document, quote, physician exam, excuse me, physical exam unchanged from last visit. Close quotes, and that would count all the elements documented in the previous note for having been performed in this current visit. Of course, it's still a dilemma since these changes only apply to Medicare patients and no other payers. Let's see, Nicoletti physician coding expert told me, and I quote her, honestly, I can't get my head around this and how to explain it to practices and what to recommend they do. Allow this only for Medicare patients? Document to different standards? Audit differently? I think it's a mess. Well, she is so right about that. Next, on Thursday, CGS released a notice that they will not be recouping any money from denials issued by the QIOs on short-stay reviews prior to September 11th. The transmittal from CMS is written in their usual incomprehensible terminology, but it appears that the MACs were not processing the denials properly by no fault of their own. What does this mean for all of you? If you had a QIO audit of short stays prior to September and the money has not been recouped, it appears you will get to keep it. But just because you get to keep the money doesn't mean the denial goes away. Your denial rate will still be used to determine if you go on to another round of audit. And there's no reason to appeal a denial to the max since an overturned denial doesn't change your QIO denial rate and would only serve to get you the money back, which you already get to keep. Finally, a large health system in Utah is asking the Supreme Court to evaluate the constitutionality of the False Claims Act. Mary Inman's gonna talk a lot about that next. And I know you didn't ask, but here's my opinion. There is medical judgment and then there is fraud. When a doctor puts a stent in an open artery, that's fraud when others know this is happening and look away because they benefit from that in some way, that's fraud. Fraud is not okay. There must be a deterrent. Back to you, Chuck.
2: Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. With Monitor Monday's hot topics and the Monitor Monday listeners survey is the President Chief Executive Officer for Nancy Beckley Associates. Nancy Beckley, good morning, Nancy.
3: Good morning, Chuck, and a special welcome to Dennis Jones, who was on some of our first broadcasts. Chuck, it's great to have him back this morning. I'm reporting on a question that I got from Cheryl, one of our listeners, regarding functional limitation reporting for hospital outpatient therapy departments. And it was her understanding, which is correct, that for outpatient therapy, physical and occupational and speech-language pathology therapy provided in a hospital outpatient therapy department, that these codes are discontinued, effective with dates of service after January 1st of 2019. CMS is going to leave the codes active because people may be reconciling claims, resubmitting claims and whatnot during timely filing requirements up till January 1st of 2020. She seems to have gotten some confusing information from another consultant that is consulting to their hospital regarding compliance. And while confusing, um, the the actual consultant is correct. They're stating that payment for non-therapy hospital outpatient department services that are reported with therapy codes but provided with a comprehensive service, think APC, is included in the payment for the package complete comprehensive service. So those should have never been having functional limitation reporting codes attached with them anyway. So um, the, probably the most confusing part of functional limitation reporting is in hospitals where therapy codes are often referred to as sometimes therapy codes. And that list can be accessed at the CMS website under the therapy page. So now we'll bring up our poll. Our poll is brought to you by the American College of Physician Advisors. Dr. Hurst just mentioned targeted probe and educate. And we want to keep a pulse on this and keep reporting. For targeted probe and educate, please check number one if you've been invited to participate and you don't have any findings yet. Check number two if you've repealed some results, some or all of them, following your round one. And check number three if you appealed results, some or all of them, following round two. And then four, if you've not been invited to participate in TPE. And of course, if you're not a provider, please check that. Chuck will be back later in the program with the results of our targeted probe and educate poll.
2: Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and the CEO for Nancy Beckley Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Lister survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about uh, eight and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from Nicole Emanuel, Mary Inman calling in live from London, Dennis Jones, and Denise Wilson. This is Monday, January the 21st. It is Martin Luther King Day and day 31 of the partial government shutdown. You're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by.
0: Here's important news about a major effort by CMS to take back millions of dollars. Listen closely. Through the use of extrapolation of 200 charts, your facility could be caught in a huge new recovery effort by CMS to crack down on inappropriate risk adjustment recoupment the CMS goal? Return to the Medicare Trust Fund $1 billion by 2020. That means your facility could be caught in this massive national recovery. But here's good news. An upcoming webcast on risk adjustment data validation audits will help prepare you for contract-level RADB audits and help you develop and implement a compliance plan to ensure your organization is RADB ready. Plan to attend risk adjustment data validation audits, the webcast is this Thursday, January 24th at 1:30 p.m. Eastern. To register, click on the handout tab in today's Monitor
2: Monday. Thanks, Clerk Anthony. And remember you can save forty dollars when you register for this very important webcast. Simply enter the coupon code Monday. And speaking of Rack Monitor webcasts, now you and your team can benefit from more than fifty compliance webcasts when you subscribe to the twenty nineteen Rack Monitor Webcast series. To subscribe, simply call 800-252-1578, extension two. And now for the Monitor Money Auditor Report, here is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole.
4: Good morning, Chuck, thank you. I'm happy to be here and happy Martin Luther King Day. Today I'm gonna talk about ADRs or additional documentation requests. These are becoming more and more prevalent and the rule has changed effective January 1, 2019. What is an ADR? When a claim is selected for medical review, a medical review additional development request is generated Requesting medical documentation be submitted to ensure payment is appropriate. Documentation must be received within a specific time frame for review and payment determination. An ADR may be sent by CGS, Zone Program Integrity Contractors, Recovery Audit Contractors, Supplemental Medical Review Contractors, the CERT Contractors, etc., etc., etc. When a claim is selected for review or when additional documentation is needed to complete the claim. A letter is generated requesting documentation and or medical records be submitted. The response must be submitted within a certain time. This is basically prepayment review on a kind of a smaller basis. A baseline annual ADR limit is established for each provider based on the number of Medicare claims paid in a previous 12-month period that are associated with the provider's six-digit CMS certification number and the provider's NPI number. Using the baseline annual ADR limit, an ADR cycle limit is also established. After three 45-day ADR cycles, CMS will calculate or recalculate, a provider's denial rate, which will then be used to identify a provider's corresponding adjusted ADR limit. Recovery auditors may choose to either conduct reviews of a provider based on their adjusted ADR limit, this has a shorter look-back period, or their baseline annual ADR limit, which has a longer look-back period. Very important for knowing your audit limits. The baseline annual ADR limit is one-half of 1%, 0.5% of the provider's total number of paid Medicare claims from a previous 12-month period. ADR limits are diversified across all types of bills for which the provider had paid Medicare claims. Now, beginning, this is important, beginning January 1, 2019, providers whose ADR cycle limit is less than one, even though their annual ADR limit is greater than one, will have their ADR cycle limit set at one additional documentation or request per 45 days until their annual ADR limit has been reached. For example, provider ABC billed for and was paid for 400 Medicare claims in a previous 12-month cycle the provider's baseline annual ADR limit would be 400 times .005, which is 2. The ADR cycle limit would be two-eighths, which is less than 1. Therefore, this provider ABC's ADR cycle limit will be set at 1, even though it's less than 1. But it will be set at 1 additional documentation request per 45 days until their annual ADR limit, which in this example is two, has been reached. In other words, provider ABC can receive one additional documentation request for two of the eight ADR cycles per year. ADR letters are sent on a 45-day cycle. The baseline annual ADR limit is divided by eight to establish the ADR cycle limit which is the maximum number of claims that can be included in a single 45-day period. Although the recovery auditors may go more than 45 days between record requests, in no case shall they make requests more frequently than every 45 days. That is the update on ADRs. Remember, this rule changed January 1, 2019. If you're under one, it's still going to be one. Back to you, Chuck.
2: Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. Intermountain Healthcare is trying to take its challenge of a False Claims Act to the Supreme Court. We now check in with Mary Inman. She is in London. She has the latest news.
5: Thanks, Chuck. Last Wednesday, in a petition to the United States Supreme Court, Intermountain Healthcare, the largest healthcare provider in the Intermountain U.S., made headline legal news by challenging the constitutionality of the False Claims Act, one of the government's most effective laws for prosecuting Medicare fraud. Specifically, Intermountain targeted the False Claims Act's key TAM provisions, which allow private citizens, known as whistleblowers, to launch a lawsuit in the government's name where they have information that individuals and or companies are submitting or causing to submit false claims to the United States government and its various federal agencies, including CMS. In the present case, Dr. Gerald Polukov filed a whistleblower suit against Intermountain and another hospital for allegedly helping a staff cardiologist perform unnecessary heart surgery on Medicare patients. In defending against the case, Intermountain now contends that the whistleblower provisions of the False Claims Act violate the Constitution's Appointments Clause, which provides that certain public officials must be appointed by the U.S. government. Per Intermountain's argument, whistleblowers who file False Claims Act cases on behalf of the government are acting as officers of the United States without having been properly appointed. The odds of the Supreme Court granting Intermountain's petition here are quite long. The four Federal Circuit Courts of Appeal to have considered the issue, including the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, which heard the Intermountain case, have all rejected arguments that the whistleblower provisions violate the Appointments Clause. What's more, the Supreme Court has already held in its 2000 ruling, Vermont Agency of Natural Resources v. Stevens, which was penned by Justice Scalia, that False Claims Act whistleblowers have legal standing to bring cases on the government's behalf. What really gave the story its legs, however, is the fact that the individual who originally championed the argument that the whistleblower provisions violate the Constitution's Appointments Clause is none other than the current nominee for Attorney General, William Barr. Barr has been an outspoken critic of the whistleblower provisions of the False Claims Act and has famously called them an abomination. During his Senate confirmation hearings last week, Barr was asked by Senator Chuck Grassley, himself a strong advocate for whistleblowers, if he renounced his previous criticisms. Barr affirmed that he would diligently enforce the False Claims Act and that it is not an abomination. Although the odds are long that the Supreme Court will grant Intermountain's petition under these circumstances, The stakes are always extraordinarily high when it comes to False Claims Act whistleblowers. Of the $60 billion that has been returned to the United States Treasury via successful False Claims Act lawsuits, 85% of this amount, or $51 billion, is attributable to key TAM lawsuits initiated by whistleblowers. Rest assured, we will continue to keep a close eye on Intermountain's continued efforts to challenge the constitutionality of whistleblower lawsuits. Back to you, Chuck.
2: Thanks, Mary, very much. That was nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the law office of Constantine Cannon in London. Mary was calling in from there this morning. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, sepsis is back in the news. Dennis Jones reports on the decision by the Healthcare Association of New York to reject the United Healthcare's use of sepsis three to review claims, and later Denise Wilson provides an overview of sepsis three. It's a subject, of course, of continuing controversy. First,
6: here's Dennis Jones. Thanks, Chuck. Um, and let me thank you for um, allowing me to take part in a second decade of uh, rack monitor uh, broadcasts. Um, first. Let me remind everybody that I am from the finance department of my hospital. I'm a boring accountant type whose days are consumed with reading explanation of benefit documents and realizing that most, most CARC codes mean pretty much the same thing. I am not one to explain the finer points of sepsis criteria. However, let me review the developments in New York State regarding United Healthcare's application of sepsis 3 criteria to review claims. To begin with, United Healthcare published an October 2018 network bulletin on sepsis-3 criteria. In the bulletin, United Healthcare proclaimed that it would use sepsis-3 criteria in its claim reviews. However, in New York State, there's a unique circumstance regarding the application of sepsis-3 criteria that goes back to a tragic incident in, 19, in, sorry, in 1912, in 2012. In 2012, a young boy named Roy Staunton a 12 years old, the son of Irish immigrants, uh, cut his arm in gym class while diving for possession of a basketball. The gym teacher dressed the wound, but before the next day, Rory was sick with a fever and leg pain and vomiting. Rory saw a pediatrician who referred him to the emergency room of a New York City hospital. The hospital saw the symptoms and treated Rory for a flu bug that was going around. The young boy was discharged prior to the result of lab tests that would have shown the presence of a blood infection. Sadly, Rory died from sepsis uh, that soon after, and uh, this is a sepsis that would have been successfully treated if it would have been recognized earlier. New York State subsequently passed Rory's regulation that requires hospitals to have in place evidence-based protocols for the early recognition and treatment of patients with sepsis or septic shock that are based on generally accepted standards of care, and that hospitals shall submit sepsis protocols requiring uh, required pursuant to the definitions of a paragraph of the regulation. Um, this was um, to be done prior to July 1st of 2013. And this was this predates the Sepsis 3 criteria. Uh, at the time sepsis two criteria were widely accepted for the purposes of identifying and treating sepsis so that when united healthcare published its intent to utilize sepsis three criteria it was in conflict with the new york state department of health regulations on December 18th of 2018, the Greater New York Hospital Association and the Hospital Association of New York sent a letter to the New York Department of Health pointing out the differences between sirs based sepsis-2 definitions and the SOFA-based sepsis-3 definition. In its letter, the hospital association stated that sepsis-2 bases the recognition of sepsis on SERS criteria and therefore allows clinicians to consider a sepsis diagnosis much earlier in the advancement of the disease. This criteria prompts clinicians to initiate rigorous monitoring and treatment protocols to avoid escalation of sepsis into organ dysfunction, further morbidity, and mortality. The letter went on to say, and this is significant, we believe insurers that are adopting the sepsis 3 definition are doing so not for the purpose of improving the quality of care, but simply as a mechanism to downcode claims and reduce payments to providers. The Department of Health pointed out the issue um, in the letter to United Healthcare, and on January third, United Healthcare issued a statement defending its use of sepsis three criteria, but conceding, in light of the regulations, nonetheless, United Healthcare will not apply sepsis three to New York providers until such a time as New York adopts the updated criteria. Chuck, this may sound like a temporary reprieve, but the likelihood that sepsis two criteria identify possible cases of sepsis earlier with the possibility of some false positive sepsis cases, New York State may not be in a hurry to change its sepsis regulations. Haney's has gone on to state that it will continue to push back against the use of sepsis 3 criteria by other payers, so we'll keep an eye on this situation. Back to you, Chuck.
2: Thanks, Dennis, very much. That was Dennis Jones. Dennis is the Administrator of Patient Financial Services at Montefiore Nyack Hospital in Nyack, New York. Here now to provide context relative to sepsis 3 is Denise Wilson. Good morning, Denise.
7: Good morning, Chuck. Thank you for having me this morning. So today I'd like to share with the Monitor Monday listeners some information gained from appealing over 2,000 clinical validation denials for sepsis in the state of New York since the time of the release of the sepsis 3 criteria in February of 2016. Many of the commercial and managed care payer denials that we have received from our clients in New York have been issued by third party contractors and not by the payers themselves. Most of these third party contractors are using, but not specifically quoting or citing, septic three criteria in their audits. The denial language almost always includes some phrasing about the lack of evidence of acute organ dysfunction or end organ compromise. Occasionally, the third party contractors will mention SOFA scores, but without any specific citing of SOFA criteria. So, when United Healthcare stated that they would be using SEPSIS 3 criteria in their audits, I viewed it as just a formalization of the process that they were already following. It will be interesting to see how or if their auditing process changes after the response from the Greater New York Healthcare Association and United's announcement to not use sepsis-free criteria in New York. Now, New York is a state that allows for clinical validation denial to be taken to external review once the commercial payer's internal appeal process has been exhausted. Some states view clinical validation denials as payment disputes and only allow for external review when the medical necessity of the services is provided is in question but they do not allow for external review if it's a payment dispute. We have experienced higher overturn rates when the appeal is filed outside of the payer's internal appeal process, but not all states will allow that. We have found that having the opportunity to appeal to an IRE, which is an independent review entity or an independent review agency in the state of New York has contributed to a higher success rate of overturned denials than for for providers in other states where those states do not offer the opportunity to appeal to an external agency. If your state allows clinical validation denials to be appealed to an IRE, you should be taking advantage of that. From our experience, when reviewing census denials, these IREs are looking for consistent physician documentation in the medical record establishing that clinical evidence by which the sepsis was diagnosed and treated. The IREs are not quoting sepsis 3 criteria per se, but they are looking for organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. In order to pass muster for IREs, there should be documentation that the conditions identified in the medical record require continuous treatment, evaluation, and monitoring, and that the identified abnormal clinical values are attributed, are attributed to the sepsis by the physicians caring for the patient. Now, the abnormal clinical values don't necessarily have to be limited to those described in the SOFA criteria, as long as the abnormal values are indicative of organ dysfunction. So the physician's documentation has to make that connection that the abnormal clinical values that support organ dysfunction are a result of the sepsis. A clearly documented correlation between organ dysfunction and sepsis will very often result in an overturn of a clinical validation sepsis denial. At least that has been our experience.
2: Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Denise. That was Denise Wilson. Denise is Vice President of Intersect Healthcare Plus Appeals Masters. Now it's time for the Modern Money Listener Survey, and hopefully we'll have time to answer a couple of questions during our Monday Q&A. Once again, here's Nancy Beckley. Nancy.
3: Thanks, Chuck. And as you said earlier, our poll is brought to you by the American College of Physician Advisors. I'm Targeted Probe and Educate, we had 27% of our listeners this morning said they weren't providers, but 27% of our listeners said they appealed results, some or all following round one. And 10% said they appealed results, summer are all following round two. And um, somebody also wrote in regarding my statement of we've been invited to participate. That's my joke. It's a little bit of levity. I know you're not invited, That you're required to participate. So for the first one, we've had people that have been given a letter notified that they're in targeted probe and educate at 11%. So we're going to keep our track on this just to see how folks are doing since this seems to be the most prominent ADR we have going on now.
2: There's a question that came in from uh, Sherry. This question is for Nicole.
3: Let me tee it up for you, Nicole. During a probe and educate, shouldn't a MAC send an ADR letter prior to reviewing? for an automated review, for a focused drug review, or is the MAC permitted to move forward with an automated review? They got a letter letting them know that the MAC will be doing Probe and Educate, but no ADR was provided. And the MAC stated in their letter that we basically have higher utilization than other hospitals. Nicole, what's your response?
4: This MAC is obviously using data analysts and is using a computer program to determine that maybe you have more utilization than other hospitals. They're probably the targeted probe and educate is most likely a post-payment review, whereas you get an ADR letter for pre-payment review. So, so there are different types of audits, and yes, the MAC is permitted to go forward with an automated review, although you really need to defend against it because the automated reviews have the highest number of
3: errors. Yeah. I think that's all the time we have for questions today.
2: It is indeed, Nancy. And thank you, Nicole, very much for the response to that question. Uh, That is going to be a wrap for us. And I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, whom you just heard, Nicole Emanuel, Ronald Hirsch, Mary Inman calling in live from London, Dennis Jones and Denise Wilson. We thank you for starting off your week with us. And here's a program note before we leave. Today, we reported on sepsis. And you can learn more about sepsis when you listen to a recent sepsis webcast, sepsis Three. Using the new definition of avoid denials. It's now available on demand. You can learn how to navigate both worlds, sepsis 2 and sepsis 3, to support the diagnosis of sepsis and of course create rebuttals for denials. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Have a great week, everybody.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.